Fulhamish is backed for the season by Ladbrokes. Hello, this is Fulhamish. We are a few kids who mock up a Fulham podcast. Happy New Year and let's hope 2018 is prosperous to you and yours and is filled with many a three points. And as Storm Eleanor Barrage the UK, Storm Fulham last night took apart Ipswich Town with four goals scored in a devastating seven minutes of football. My name is Sammy James and with me on tonight's podcast are three gentlemen who love to vent. Farrell Monk. Bingo Bango, everyone. Penjarman. Hello, everyone. Who's speechless and Jack Collins. The most hated man on Fulham Twitter. How are we doing? Hey, very good, thank you. How are your Christmases? Good, yeah. Yeah, really good. Delightful. Did you have a nice break in Barcelona, Jack? I did, had a lovely time. You know, it was very pleasant. I watched Barcelona win the Classico on a big screen in in, in Barcelona, which was excellent, and some street parties. That was fun. And yeah, it was was all pretty nice. Farrell, good Christmas? Yeah, it was good. Uh, My parents got a new puppy, which I'm arguing over the name about, because... What are you going for? Louis or Steed. <laughs> well, well, previous dogs were called Tiggy after Tigana and Cookie after Coleman. Oh, wow. And we're taking suggestions if, uh, if you want to tweet in. Felix. <laughs> <laughs> Felix the dog. What about a Boobacar? Uh, could do, could do. Mm, long, long way to go. Yeah. Get your suggestions in that Fulhamish pod. Ben, how was your Christmas? Uh, mine wasn't uh, halfway near as eventful as these two guys, but I watched a lot of films and ate a lot of cheese, and subsequently I'm much fatter than before. There we go. <laughs> How was yours, Sam? It was lovely, thank you very much. Cheers. Well, uh, on to important matters. Uh, in tonight's pod, we will discuss the successful Christmas period, 10 points from 12, although mostly focusing on the most recent Ipswich and Hull games. Uh, we do need to do some three-word reviews, so we'll take them from last night, Jack Collins, as we beat Ipswich Town 4-1. What came in? Um, we're going to use Instagram today to, to mix things up, so oh, okay. keep you all on your toes, so you occasionally switch between our platforms to let you know. Um, so I think Edward Cohen started with AK-47 is GOAT, which was amusing. John Harlan's clinical seven minutes. Uh, Beadle Spam had limbs everywhere. Uh, man said, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And Lickababa said, we are sh-wonderful, which I thought was, was reasonably clever. Nice. Well, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to go with one more. I've just seen this. Sam Beadle, the Gira effect. Oh, yeah. Oh, nice. Big thing, Sam Beadle. It was very good to see Zolly. Uh, on the pitch at half time last night. So before we dissect Ipswich, just to say that this season Fulhamish is backed by Ladbrokes. Right now, Fulhamish listeners can bet £5, get £20. Different year, same offer. This means if you deposit a fiver, Ladbrokes will add another £20 to your account. You can get the offer by following the link at bet.fulhamish.co.uk. So it's a huge second half turnaround where Fulham scored four goals in seven minutes, a blistering period of football that blew away Ipswich Town and leaves Fulham just four points shy of the playoffs. Um, Let's go to the start of the match. It's a very logical place to start a football match. Ben, Mm. um, got to be one of our best starts this season, despite the fact that our lack of clinical edge meant that we didn't score a goal in it. Yeah, I think from the off, we really bossed possession. We looked like we had a game plan and one that was going to attack Ipswich from the get-go. Um, and I think that we really used the fullbacks well, especially in the opening stages. I thought Fredericks provided the space for Cabano uh, later in the match, uh, but formerly um, Ojo and Aite to, and, um, yeah, Ojo and Aite to get into um, in and around the box. Um, we put in a lot of dangerous balls across the face of goal that probably should have been converted by uh, AK. 
he was under a lot of pressure and I thought we bossed possession really, really well. You could see that probably about 15 minutes in, it was switch players were already getting very frustrated. They were starting to argue with each other and, and lash out slightly. Um, I thought we had some nice structure to the play um, and we looked really incisive going forward for once and it was sort of like a hark back to when we played Ipswich um, first time around this season that we really looked like we found our groove again. Well, yeah, I think our two best performances this season have both come uh, against Ipswich, home and away. Um, Farrell, uh, Abubakar was given a start yesterday after his blistering display against Hull where he got a couple of goals. He got a couple of hulls again and not just that, he was dangerous throughout the game. It was a good performance. Yeah, absolutely. He um, he kind of, it was a good uh, all-round performance and me and Jack were um, shooting some breeze before the game and, uh, you know, if it wasn't for his two goals, people would still have said it was a good performance from him. I mean, his 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 goals all you know were taken and they were kind of easy. We'll touch on them later. But his all round performance, he he totally bossed uh, up top. He was running the channels well. His decision making was good. And a lot of the time, um, which I haven't seen from him much before this, uh, before um, last night's performance, was the amount of one touch passes he was doing. And it was really. Um, he was sort of, you know, taking the initiative and not taking too many touches, which is what he was doing at the start of the season, where he's taking one or two or three or four or five too many touches and kind of losing and then sort of getting stuck in uh, five different minds. But, you know, it's plain to see. You don't meet, need me to tell you. Just watch the performance about how much he unsettled their back line. Uh, there's two people that Fulham fans hate in this world. One's Felix Magath and the, one, the other one is Jack Collins. How are you doing? Yeah, I mean, um, <laughs> I, I've faced a fair bit of criticism over the last couple of days. That's all right. That's okay. Life of a journalist, you know. We get by. Abubakar. Yeah. Obviously, you were one of his harshest critics towards the beginning of the season. And I'm sure you weren't wishing the kid not to do well. I'm sure you wanted him to do uh, as brilliantly as possible. But you must be surprised with how much he has come on just in the past two games. Yeah, I, in fact, I think it stretches further than that. I think it stretches further than that to, to Barnsley, where he actually put in a, like a, a very decent performance and, and didn't come with the goals quite, but it did, you know, he, he unsettled their back line. And if you listen back to the podcast after Nottingham Forest, what I said that was that he had the raw ingredients to be good, but at the point of, at the point of contact, he wasn't good enough at the time in the championship. I said that with time on a training ground, he might be able to, to prove, prove that good. I don't immediately think that he's also the answer to all of our prayers. And I don't think that you know a penalty, a good goal in fairness, a deflection and a tap-in make him suddenly the answer to Fulham's number nine problems. Yes, he put himself about last night well. Should he have scored two in the first half? Probably. You know, one's an open goal and the other one he, he probably should do slightly better with a shot. The second goal against Hull is excellent and, and he deserves credit for a finish, although I was screaming at him to pass the ball at the time. Um, but but also, he you know, he, he put himself about well last night and he carried the ball well and, and he did better. But, you know, there are still facets of his game that I think would improve. And what I said before the podcast, and I stand by, I don't think that Corley Woodrow would be a good enough striker to, to, at this level for Fulham. But I think he would have taken three at least three of those chances over the last couple of games that Bubakar Kamara has taken. I think that in this system, he would have scored goals. And I'm not saying that we should call Cooley Woodbow back or anything like that. And I don't think that Kamara should be dropped. I'm not, I'm not saying any of these things. What I'm saying is that I think he's come on leaps and bounds, and that's a good thing, and we should all be very pleased about it. I still don't think he's the finished article. And, and I think that if, if he continues to improve, there's no reason why he can't be a useful player this term and, and in the second half of this season. What would you give his performance last night out of 10? I would give it seven and a half. Seven and a half. Okay. Do you think the the team as a whole play better with him 
at the moment. Yeah, I do because he he does occupy defenders in in terms of a physical capacity, and and I think that that's something that and because at the start what you used to see him was he'd sort of go randomly chasing the ball and he stopped doing that now and he started waiting and looking to pounce on positions and obviously the technical team behind the scenes are working very hard on his positional play and on his you know technical aspects which are making him improve as a player i don't suddenly think he's going to bang in you know 20 goals in the second half of this season but yeah he's improving and he's getting better and at the moment he's the best you know option in terms of Font's obviously lacking confidence and, and, and not getting a, a run in the team. And I'm sure we'll come on to the substitutions later, but, you know, he could do with, with some minutes as well. But at the moment, Kamara looks like he's, you know, slotting into that system nicely. And, and he's there. The, the main point I think I'd, I'd like to make in his, in his defence, I suppose, is that I said earlier in the season that we needed someone who was going to be in the right place at the right time. And too often that's had to be our left back. And, you know, it was again in, in two occasions last night, but twice it was it was Kamara. And, and you know what? He's there and about, and that, that bit of his game's been obviously worked on very, very hard. And, he, he you know, he, he's on the cusp of, of turning into, you know, a, a decent player. And I think that we can kick on and he'll build on that. And if people continue to work on that, then he'll, he'll get there. Uh, let's come back onto that first half, as I was talking about, where I said that despite us being very, very impressive going forward, we must have had a good 10 or 11 shots in the first 30 minutes. I, I don't think that's too far-fetched to say we didn't take our chances and Slavisa said in his post-match conference how he wants Fulham to start scoring the first goal we don't do it often enough and so often we find ourselves trying to stage a comeback and whilst we've done two successful comebacks in a row I guess we can't count on every single week us being able to come back from behind and part of me wonders had Jordan Spence not got sent off last night whether we may not have achieved what we did yesterday. Is that fair or do you think we were so dominant even when it was 11 v 11 we'd eventually have broken through Ipswich's rear guard? But I totally could have seen a 30-minute time-wasting masterclass uh, from, from Ipswich had Spence not been totally reckless. You could have seen that, but I think that Ipswich as a whole, as, as a system, as a unit, were just dropping deeper and deeper into their half. They could barely get out of it. There was there was times in in that in the early periods of that second half where the only person left on the halfway line was Tim Reen, and Dennis Adoy was playing as if he was a as a holding midfielder or a, as, at times as a as a sort of like withdrawn right back, which was quite nice to see. Um, but at the same time, I don't think that they really had a, the chance. I mean, when they when they did have eleven, they put all of the players behind the ball, and it was only until. They had that man sent off that we really started to work the wide areas and we really started to pounce upon the likes of Waghorn and Freddie Sears playing out wide. And it was really clear from the moment that Jordan Spence got sent off that neither Waghorn nor Freddie Sears really liked being out wide, isolated one-on-one -on -one with Ryan Fredericks or or with Ojo or with Cabano or with Sess or with Piazon when he came on later. And I really thought the introduction of Piazon was a bit of a masterstroke by Slav because... As he said when he was coming back from injury, along with Aite, we need them players that are going to be able to play in those tight gaps and work the ball through um, uh, and get in between those those tight pockets of space and really make the most of it. And I think Piazon did that on a number of occasions. Um, although he did go down with what looks like a dive, um, the important thing to note is that the footwork there was was really, really excellent. Um, he understands when to drive at a defender and when to back off. He understands when to make space and when when not to. 
And I think equally, um, Ryan Fredericks was also a really good example of that because while some people, myself included, and you would have heard me scream it a lot of times last night, Sammy, sort of berated him for not overlapping enough last night. I think that he did offer a lot of space for Ojo to go and do his bit and later for Tom Kenny to really get into the game when Ipswich had uh, 10 men. Um, Farrell, let's go on to Jordan Spence's red card. I mean, I haven't seen a wild challenge like that live for quite some time. I mean, it was, it was, I mean, it was the most blazing red card I, I've seen in, in, in years. He just lashed out. It wasn't even him that was knocked down originally by Kamara. Kamara. Yeah, it was um, uh, Freddie Sears that was knocked down, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, and then Jordan Spence just seemed to come in and, boy, don't do that to my mate, bosh. <laughs> it was as, as blatant foul um, as uh, uh, Steph Joe's um, penalty claim at Cardiff on Boxing Day, which was mm. a joke. Um, but yeah, it was it was ridiculous. I, I mean, as a as a defensive hard man, I love it. But uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's a disgrace. It's an absolute disgrace. And Mick McCarthy must uh, he's going to be fined. He's going to be he must, he's going to be absolutely fuming with him because he's he's quite rightly might have lost them that game really because. Ipswich was starting to get to a stage where they were looking a bit more comfortable uh, absorbing these attacks, and then all of a sudden, it, it you know, they'd, rode, they'd I, for me, they'd rode out fifteen minutes of yeah. early pressure in that second half, and I was just start, the clock was starting to get a bit close to ninety for my liking. I was thinking this just could go on on on. But no, yeah, got, it was yeah, go on. I got to that point in the game where the clock is getting closer and closer to that sixty point, and it's about that time when the cloud crowd. Not really got toxic, I would say, but it was to the point where everyone was getting a little bit tetchy. Yeah, it got to around about the 60-minute mark, and while the crowd wasn't getting exactly toxic, they were getting very tetchy, and it was at that point where you either thought that the game was going to go one way or the other, and I think the negativity of the crowd was sort of starting to rub off on the players who were making chances, but it wasn't exactly coming off. And I think Spence's sending off really got the crowd on side of Fulham again. And, and from there, the, the, the whole of the, the 11 really stepped up a gear. We started passing quicker. We started finding more space. And the crowd really got behind what we were trying to do. And when that first goal went in, I haven't had a, heard a noise like that for mm. a long time. And, it felt a little bit. And even bit. more so when the second went in. I don't yeah. know if it's something about being under the floodlights, but last night's atmosphere reminded me of Leeds last season. Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. I was going to say, there was a passion in the crowd. I, t- I tell you what, I mean, what what Ben you said quite rightly was the fact that I think the crowd urged the players on a bit more um, after that sending off and, yeah. and players like Tom Kearney did really start stepping up that he did play with a little bit more urgency he was starting to get a little bit languid I don't know whether it was a bit a bit of tiredness or it was just it was starting to it was the frustration getting to him as well all of a sudden he was starting to he was playing one and two touch passes just that little bit quicker and I think it did and it made him float a bit more as well. Yeah, well, I said this to Sammy at the point where Ipswich were just go, growing into the game in the first half, i.e. When, when it started really, really raining, and it sort of levelled the playing field, but Ipswich then started to look like the better team. And it was almost as if we got really comfortable with passing it around the back and almost to the point where we would become quite lackadaisical about it. Almost when we, we went 4-1 up with like five minutes, well, when it was like five minutes to go, it was almost like that a little bit because they were just passing around like as we, if we there were was playing, no contest anymore. We were playing after about 30 minutes like we'd taken two or three of yeah, our like chances. we were already about 5-0 yeah. up. We, yeah. we, we were terrible. And then I, I think, you know, it was after, it was at that point where Spence got sent off that Ipswich started to get into the game again and the crowd sort of sensed what was happening and, you know, it didn't really happen again after that. Yeah, it was a strange one. I, I've not 
you're right. I've not seen a challenge like that for a, for, a, for a while at Fulham. And um, to to add to your point, and I know it's not the same, and this isn't to be taken out of context, but it felt a bit like that challenge. Do you remember in the corner against Hamburg? when we were 1-0 down and everyone was starting to lose a bit of hope and then like they made, their defender made like a wild challenge in the mm. corner on Simon Davis, I think it was, and the bloke got booked and everyone was asking for him to be sent off and it really like roused everyone out of nowhere and actually, I think we, we've talked about this before, I think we looked at the challenge afterwards and it wasn't really a foul and it was just a hard challenge but everyone like, it really got everyone going and it really did like the blood kind of started to boil again and it was like, right, this is going to happen but I mean... You know what? There was a lot of people on. There's a lot of Ipswich fans at the time on Twitter going, "Oh, it's disgraceful how much you know the number forty-seven rolled around on the floor, blah blah." blah. And then for Mick McCarthy to come out afterwards and be like, "Yeah, absolutely ridiculous challenge, red card." Yeah. Cool. He, almost, like he almost shoved Kamara into Mick McCarthy. It was like was one that? of those ones where you're like, "Well, that's enough for that chat, I suppose." And it was. It wasn't just you know Ipswich fans. It was like Ipswich journalists and Ipswich, you know, being like, "Absolutely disgraceful." I was like, well, it's, it's not. It's not. It's not it, at was, all. it was kind of. It was Literally kind of how. Me. Yeah, it was kind of how Ipswich had kind of be. They were playing a bit of rough tactics and there were quite a few challenges they probably could have got more yellow cards for. Uh, Joe Garner in particular from yeah. start to finish was quite niggly. I mean, there was Jack two, will probably say, in his, what do you yeah, expect come, from yeah, a Rangers exactly. What do you expect from a Rangers player? Well, there was two, <laughs> there was two the two centre mids where they both, they pulled back um, counter-attacks three or four times by yeah. pulling us back and the referee did have enough and booked both of them. And there wasn't there four yellow cards in, uh, in injury time. Yeah, which is was. which is weird from a team that well, are four one down. To be fair, one of them is because Cabano and Waghorn got into it a little bit, and yeah. Cabano slapped him around the back of the head, which could have been a sending off offence. But I think everyone sort of used their head a little bit there. Mm. Um, um, Mick McCarthy did point that out in in his post match interview that he thinks that Cabano should have got sent off for hitting Waghorn, but. I think Waghorn did lash out at him equally. So there you go. And Keith Stroud loves giving out cards. Keith Stroud yes. does love a card, doesn't he? His he record's does. unbelievable. Yes. More, than, more than Christmas recently. Well, he's got a lot of cards for Christmas, so he's got to give them out. That's true. Yeah. I used that line last night. It's not the first time I've said that. Yeah, no, it's a bit embarrassing. <laughs> right, let's get on to the goals. Um, the first, lovely play from Sess and AK. It was a good cross into the box from Kamara. It really should have been Cabano's goal. I don't really understand how he did what he did, but... He provided an assist to Sessignon and Sessignon headed it very smartly into the ground and about three Ipswich players on the line just couldn't quite get their feet on it and it was a massive turning point in the game. But yeah, I don't understand. The laws of physics seem to be defied by what Cabano did. What an assist. An absolute miss of the season, wasn't it? If, if, that didn't, if, if Ryan Sessignon hadn't converted that, we would have been saying that that is probably the one of the worst misses of all time. <laughs> Surely. But it's a great header from Cesc. He gets quite a bit of power behind it and it's always... he. I like the way he aims it directly at where the defenders don't want to put their body, like i.e. by the hands or the arms. Mm. So it's, it's, it's fairly clever whether he meant it or not. Yeah. Apart from that, I mean, like, I mean, it was a terrible miss, but Kamado, I thought Kamado played quite well when he came on. He, oh, he was, did. He I was think... very incisive. Mm. Um, unfortunately, actually, while we speak about Kabano, about Aite picking up a knock, mm. I don't know the full extent and whether it was just a little niggle that might be solved before Southampton or whether it's going to be a bit longer but it just seems to be the way with Aite at the moment he gets three or four games back in three or four games out just can't seem to get a solid run without picking up an injury yeah but I mean you've got to manage that I suppose and, and his, he's had three starts in a row now and, and, and therefore you know in a very tight period of time so you know, with someone who's, who's so injury prone and when we have players like Cabano who can reasonably um, acceptably interchange with him and, and they both play you know, not they don't play the same game, but they play similar roles within the team. 
Um, it potentially was one maybe not to start Aite last night, especially after Cabano's um, cameo at Hull, where he was obviously very good. Um, so potentially one of those, but you know, he, he fingers crossed he's all right, and we can we can build again, even if he's out for a week and misses the Southampton game. Not the end of the world. Well, we, I don't want to go on with a massive dissection of all the goals, as I'm sure you can watch them yourselves. But the third for me, absolute magic from Tom Kearney. He had the Ipswich players turning left, right, centre. Uh, and then obviously our left back's the one poaching the goal at the far post. Yeah, that makes sense. In fairness, just Sesh's attacking instincts are unbelievable. But I don't know how he ends up on the goal line. That is genuinely nuts. Yeah. Like, it, it doesn't make any sense. With for, no for one anywhere close yeah, to as him. In the, what is going on with the Ipswich defence? Why have they got so many people around Tom Kearney, for one? And then the way he gets round them all, and then... And then there's just no one picking up any one of the back stick. There's not only Cess free, but um, there's a man behind him free as well. It's not. It's not just Cess, and it doesn't make any sense. Maybe it's one of those like FIFA ones where you get a man sent off, and you're like, oh, I can't be bothered to switch him around, and that's yeah. where Jordan Spence should have been. Yeah, Diego Kearney Donna. I wouldn't say in defence of Ipswich, but it is a point to make that in that seven minutes, Ipswich completely fell apart, and it was it was when we started to move the ball much quicker that they completely became disorganised and. A lot of their, a lot of these goals did come at the, at very much of the, at the profit of poor defending on, on Ipswich's behalf, and where they looked like a solid unit for the first five minutes when they had ten men. During that seven-minute period, they almost looked like they had about eight men on the ball, uh, on the field, because there was space everywhere. They they weren't watching, you know, any of the the flanks. They weren't watching the channel. Uh, you get someone like, for example, it's so easy to pick him out, but Freddie Sears um, throughout the whole second half was particularly bad at tracking Fredericks. He was particularly bad at tracking Ojo as well um, and Cabano. Um, and I just thought that if if we had only used the flanks a little earlier, the, the score could have been slightly more handsome than it was. And just to round it off, the fourth goal from Kamara. Actually, I had a point on the, the second, which was Kamara's first. I quite liked how Ollie Norwood's shot, which I think might have been going in, was blocked by Kamara himself with his own massive feet and then he poached the goal. Yeah, he also nicked the goal off Piazon. Oh, yeah. 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 It is absolute carnage. There's so many Fulham shirts in the box. We never have anyone in the box and then when the one time there is a player in the box, we have four players trying to score. And uh, then for Kamara's fourth, actually, he had an opportunity, a better opportunity to shoot before he took the extra split touch. Sec- yeah. Split second yeah. before he took the extra touch. The goal was open if he'd have taken it before but admittedly he took the extra touch gets a big big deflection but yeah four goals in seven minutes what I wanted to ask is can you ever remember a blistering sequence of goals like that the only one that comes to my mind is when we beat Newcastle 5-2 it wasn't Mm. as quick but certainly there was three goals. There was three goals in about 15 minutes yeah Yeah. 6-0 against QPR I think there were a couple in a row yeah, there, mm. were, there were three goals in the opening 15 there as well, I think. Yeah, still not quite the same. And the other one is against Norwich when we won 6-1 on the last day of the season. Um, I think the last three goals came in, in, in the last 10 minutes. Yeah. Before one of them was a, a Papa Boobadiot peach of a free kick. Oh, it was, wasn't that it? That was in the first half. I think it was the first goal. I think I, right. I just remember what that yeah. goal being. But three of the goals in that game were very quick succession. Zach Knight scored a volley. Yeah, I mean, limbs everywhere, really. <laughs> Four in seven minutes, though. It's just That's unbelievable. Insane. That's insane. Wasn't it the same? It, it, Wolves last night scored like three and five minutes or six minutes last night. Yeah. So down Brentford, yay. 
Wolves are wolves, though. Wolves are running away with it um, at an alarming pace. Well, mind the gap. Yeah, it was a brilliant, brilliant win last night, and I'm sure we all enjoyed it. It felt like a very special atmosphere at the cottage. Uh, just four points off the playoffs. Uh, we're going to take a little break in a moment. We're going to talk a bit about Hull and then just the Christmas period overall. Uh, with the 10 points from 12 and what that means potentially for the league table. Uh, Just to say, please do follow us uh, on Instagram if you have an account. And if you don't have an account, why don't you have an Instagram account? Get an Instagram account and follow us at Fulhamish Pod. We're so close to 1,000 and it's all I really wanted for Christmas and I didn't get it. So I'm hoping to get it in the January sales. So please follow us at Fulhamish Pod. Get us to 1,000. And if you're completely unable to do that, then leave us a a review on iTunes as an apology. (laughs) Right, we'll be back in just a second. Hello, Sammy here. How's it going? Normally in this bit of the podcast, we have a sponsor message, often selling very posh craft beer. But we'd like to find some new sponsors for 2018, and we thought we might put the message out there. We need a sponsor so that we can pay the bills, stuff like the website, buying equipment, and buying ourselves enough beer that numbs the pain of Jack's incessant ranting. If you've got a business and you'd like to advertise to the thousands of Fulham fans that listen to this show every week, give us an email, pod at fulhamish.co.uk. We can have a chat and see what we can do for you. That's pod at fulhamish.co.uk. Drop us an email. We'd love to hear from you. Hello and welcome back to the Fulhamish Podcast. My name is Sammy James, joined by Jack Collins, Farrell Monk and Ben Jarman. So we're going to have a little bit of a look at the Hull game, which was last Saturday, all the days blurring into one over Christmas. Another dramatic comeback for Fulham uh, as the Whites overturned a 2-0 halftime deficit to grab a point courtesy of two goals once again from your man, AK-47. <laughs> pop, pop, pop. Uh, Slav went for the same lineup as the one that beat Cardiff on the Tuesday, Boxing Day. Was that a little bit of a mistake in hindsight? I mean, I think he's kind of wrecked if he does, wrecked if he doesn't in this scenario. So I because I, I was quite happy. I don't think it's an easy answer. I I, I wasn't. I I would have I would have gone for the slight rotation. I think rather than I probably would have switched out Ayite and given his injury problems in the past and and maybe a few other players that can do the. You know the, the, those rotation games without necessarily influencing the structure of the team so much. You know maybe a Norwood for Johansson kind of job, but uh, but you know what if if, if Slav had changed the team too much after winning so comprehensively at Cardiff in what I think was probably our best performance of the season, I, I, then I think that you know then he would have been slated for doing so as well. So you know what he can't really win there. I think. You know, there, there, there's more to be said for for maybe rotationing, rotationing, rotating like last season, <laughs> but where given Slav has been so like so, there's been so much rotation up to this point to then not rotate through the like three games in closest succession seems like an absolute madness. But fair play to Slav because he he rung the cha- he rung the changes early doors and and Slav's coming to for criticism from this podcast for. Some tactical ineptness in certain games during December. I think uh, Brentford was one we definitely called him out for, uh, and some of his substitutions there were madness. But he saw the problems early on and addressed them and, and made a swift change that directly affected the game when we were really, really struggling. Yeah, it was. I mean, bold is the is the word I would use. You very rarely get managers switching up in the first, so early in the game. And... Um, but you know, Slavisa is full of high risk, high reward moves and tactics, and you know this time it paid off. Um, 
you know, so I'm very happy about that. And it certainly did change the game. You know, I found it quite weird that it, one of them was Ojo because I thought Ojo was actually playing pretty well. Um, and he has been playing pretty well for a good solid month or two by now. Yeah, it, it was a bit of a, a bold move and one that addressed some of the issues with, with, with the game. I think that uh, to a point we were lucky against Hull they should have been out of sight, if I'm honest. And and that didn't that wasn't about being at the start of the second half or the end of the first. They should have scored two, one more at the end of the first half and another one at the start of the second. So you know, Hull could have been four 0 up, and it wouldn't have made any difference about the the amount of sort of posturing going on in attack when we couldn't defend against crosses. And and that was the thing that needed calling out on or against Hull. Why we have an inability to defend basic set pieces and crosses sometimes does actually blow my mind. Mm. But you know that that you know he needs credit where it's due, and we did it did change up the attacking impetus that Fulham had, and it did you know actually reap the rewards, and and the whole didn't take those chances, and we did end up taking ours. So, you know what, you can only slay people by the actual results they get, and and that was a, a point well saved at Hull, but not one we should have had to be saving in the first place. We should have, we should have not, we shouldn't have been looking to go to Hull to get a point. We should have been looking, and it felt like a good point because of the situation we were in, but. Actually, if you'd said to me, would you take a point before the game, I probably would have said no. I probably would have taken a point. I think Hull are on the up. They do actually have a not not that bad a squad. And considering how well Fulham have been doing up until that point, I would have taken the point. Considering it came after uh, a very, very good performance against uh, against Cardiff and with Camel Grisicki out, uh, out the side, who's a very, very good player, and I rate very highly, I think we should have been looking to win at Hull. I think that, but I guess you always have to remember they were in the Premier League last season. They far from disgraced themselves in the second half of that Premier League season. Had it not been so dreadful in the first half, they might have been able, um, Marcus Silva might have been able to save them. And they have a new manager bounce. So it was a, a bit like the Sunderland game. It wasn't as easy as it potentially no. looked and would have been had it been three or four weeks earlier. However, that does not get us out of the embarrassing defending for that first goal. I mean, losing so many headers in your own box like that. I mean, I think we lost four headers in a row, basically. And then it fell to Jared Bowen. Everyone was claiming offside at the time, but it definitely, definitely wasn't. It was just shocking. Well, one thing we noticed about Fulham is that over the past sort of start of the season that we've got terrible, we've got even worse at defending set pieces and we really need someone in there as part of this centre-back pairing that is going to give some sort of authority to the back line. And on top of that, you need a keeper that is obviously going to command his box. And again, it comes down to the Betanelli versus Button debate. And it doesn't matter what side of the fence you're on. You want a keeper that's going to be able to to command the box and to command his area well and, and try and come and collect the ball when possible. Obviously, we tried to see that. We saw that a little bit last night against Ipswich with uh, Betanelli and unfortunately ended up getting uh, getting injured. And we also conceded a goal. And again, last night, there was even the, def- the defence was quite shocking then as well. I think clearly going into January, um, we- we're going to need some sort of defensive reinforcements there. And I think the fact that Callas was dropped last night and there was no centre-back replacement for him, it was Adoy. And, and Adoy was good, but it- we clearly need someone in there who's going to give some sort of command to this back line, some sort of experience, some power, some height and some much-needed brutality to, to the middle of that centre-back pairing that can also play the way we want to play. Mm. I think whilst Ream has been exceptional um, this season and is by far and away our most improved player since um, Slavisa Jakanovic took over and he's the only remaining player from that first ever Slavisa game, 
he, he it does leave something to to be desired when he's uh, aerially challenged. Um, and I think uh, Hull and Ipswich this weekend um, showed it, showed that a little bit. And it should be an area that we should be looking to strengthen in in January. And I think even though we do have Maddle, he's clearly not getting a look in. Jello isn't going to get a look in either, and that's far too um, shallow to be a championship. Um, winning or championship playoff defence. Well, also, I mean, obviously we talk about the first one when they lost so many headers, but the defending for the second uh, Hull goal wasn't exactly exquisite either. Great pass from John Sorrell. You've got uh, yeah, to give credit yeah. to John Sorrell. He split Callas and Ream. Uh, and and in fairness, I wasn't actually expecting Dicko to finish that chance mm. considering what a... Well, I was about to say awful, it's a bit harsh, but certainly he is a very wasteful striker. Firstly, John Terrell is someone that I think that we should potentially be looking at if we can get hold of him. I think he's a very talented midfielder and someone that could quite easily fit into our system and would, would maybe take the burden off Kenny slightly and would even let us uh, rest uh, Stefan Johansson. Um, I think Kalas completely loses his man. Um, he gives him far too much time and... Um, like the, like you say, the finish from Dicko is astounding given the fact that he's completely off balance. And that left-footed shot could have gone anywhere. It could have gone rose-ed, it could have gone you know, off to the corner flag. Um, but unfortunately, it went top top bins and you don't really save them. And it's a cracking finish from Dicko. And he gave us a, a, quite a bit of... Um, well, quite a bit of trouble all afternoon because of his sheer physicality and size. And then we brought on our own version of him... Um, Bubakar Kamara and he, he gave uh, equally as, as good a testament down the other end well let's come on to Kamara we did speak about him a lot obviously in the first part in the Ipswich bit but I think it seems to be a huge turning point for him as a player and we've always seen him as a bull in a china shot player that's a phrase that we've used on this podcast several times but that performance against Hull far more than the performance against Ipswich showed me that there is a more composed side to his game and the finish for goal number two it's exquisite. It's the it's the little Ronaldinho dink. Yeah, I mean it was it was just a composed, nice finish. I mean, a keeper's going to make a, an absolute world of a save to pick that one out, and it's it's placement, not power. The the defending for that one, I would question slightly that the the defender there was completely out of position and was almost willing him to shoot. Mm. Maybe because Kamara was such in the way and he just couldn't get round to the right position. Um, but much like the newer Dicko second goal. Um, that it was kind of it was taken too quickly for anyone kind of set themselves up. The the Dicko goal I would kind of question almost question Bettinelli's position for it, but mainly because he wasn't expecting him to take it so early. Mm. And perhaps Kamara just uh, he got that first touch away, and then he just thought, well, I'm just going to go for it because there's the opening. And I think maybe the defenders were taken off guard from it, and he was doing it all game. The amount of times he was sort of you know, play, doing stuff so unexpectedly that the defenders didn't know what was going to come from him. You know, that time when he caught of somehow the def, when the, there was a long ball through and it looked like for no chance Kamara was getting there and seemed like the defender was sort of going to sort of just try and uh, see it out of play. And all of a sudden Kamara's there and then he's played it across goal and someone should have tapped it in. Mm. I think it does definitely add a different dynamic to our play, Jack. I think that it's um, important to remember, we, we actually brought this up a while back and it was after one of the games where Kamara had tried to leather everything and leathered everything into the top of the Hammersmith end. And mm-hmm. a point that we made was that actually a lot of his goals for Amiens last season came as like stroked finishes when he was put through on goal behind the defence and they were like not as 
he wasn't like a absolutely batter it into the goal kind of kind of finisher. He was more of a, uh, you know, it goes through and he sort of just slips it past Baz, you know, as, on the angle almost. And to to see that finish was very reminiscent of a couple of the go- goals he scored for Amiens last year. And I think that it, it, it's about that kind of not needing, you know, he'd scored that game already. And, you know, if he hadn't scored the penalty, I think he would have probably tried to leather that. And he didn't feel the need to because... He'd already scored and, and obviously his confidence was up because of that and he'd won the penalty. So, you know, he'd obviously felt like he was he was confident enough to just stroke that one home. And I think that's that's the area of his game that we need to see more of. And, and it's obvious, you know, obviously that sounds you know, ludicrously obvious in hindsight. But if he keeps his confidence up, precisely. we'll see more of these this kind of finishes. This is what I'm saying, but, it, you know, if, if he needs to be, you know, on the training ground every day, people being like, you don't need to leather it. You don't need to leather it. You know where the bottom, you know where the goal is. You know, you showed that in the last couple of games. All you need to do is keep your head when you see the goal and don't get this, you know, absolutely mad rush of blood. And, and instead of that, just think, hang on, I've, I've scored a couple like this this season already, you know, Nottingham Forest as well. Uh, and and that was the the point, and you know that's why we you know we must have bought him on, on the back of seeing some of these goals and finishes, and you know the the way he played last season, and and that's the kind of thing we would have been looking for from him from the start. That kind of ability to actually be like, okay, yeah, actually, there's a spot in the goal over there that I'm going to pick out, and that's what I'm going to finish. And and hopefully that's the area they're working on most, and that's the area that I think if he improves on, he could therefore become a useful player. So it's ten points from twelve. From the Christmas period, uh, I'm including Barnsley in that, even though it was just before Christmas. Now, I remember reading the Sean Davis column just before Christmas, and, and he said, Sean's always a very optimistic man, and he goes, you know, if we just get 12 points from the Christmas period, we'll be right up there. And I remember thinking, we just lost to Sunderland, Sean. I don't, I don't know if you should be expecting 12 points. I mean, yes, we haven't quite reached that, but we've got 10 out of 12. We couldn't have expected to do too much better how much progress have we made just in the last four games well in the last nine we've got more points than we did in the first 17 that's for sure so that's progress made there and I think if we hadn't have lost to Sunderland we hadn't have lost to Brentford and I think we discussed this last night Sammy then people would be absolutely over the moon with the form we've had across these last 10 games and I think we're showing an upward trajectory don't get me wrong there are still some glaring um, flaws in the team that need to be uh, either papered over come January or they need to be plugged permanently in that same time period. I'm looking at the likes of the left-back where we, we, I think we're all in agreement that we don't want Sessegnon there permanently because we find that he's much more effective at left wing. Um, we, I think we, all of us here, including the manager, understand that we need to have a replacement centre-back, if not two replacement centre-backs. And the manager's even come out himself and said that we need a striker. I think that the past four games have been really encouraging in terms of the results and the, and the performances and the way that we came back against Hull showed good character. The way that we put four goals past Ipswich in seven minutes shows, again, good character, good strength and good identity. And the way we took the game to Cardiff, again, shows that we have confidence in ourselves. I think we're starting to see that the middle three that we used in the champ- in the playoff run last season is now starting to come together a little bit more. They're hitting form, they're they all seem to be approaching full fitness. I mean, Stephanie Hansen, whilst isn't playing well, does look um, a little bit fitter than he did a few games ago. Tom Kearney is steadily sort of under the radar coming back to his brilliant best. And while he isn't scoring yet, he is making a lot of chances and creating a lot of 
uh, what what is coming from our best play and uh, the return of Kevin McDonald and his return to form has been has been really good for us. And although he wasn't there last night and it was Norwood, um, I think that this all been instrumental for us. And I think if we go into January and we get the window right, just unlike we did last year, where I think we got the window slightly wrong, then we could really kick on and get we could really get get playoffs here. Um, Farrell, four points from the playoffs, ten points from the automatics. Now, I think the latter's a little bit um, beyond us. And I know it's not beyond us mathematically, but I think we'd almost have to have a perfect second half of the season to get anywhere near that. But would you agree that we're very much in the playoff race? Absolutely. I think we've we've never left the playoff race, considering how crazy the championship is and considering where Fulham were at at the same stage last season and we were fir- we ended up firmly in the playoffs. You don't think eight points adrift, I think we were, after the Brentford game? Yeah, I, I said on the pod itself that we were still in the playoff race. Yeah, and, and I, you did I, in Venice. And, I, I, you know, I, I'm thankfully and very happily justified in that because obviously we've seen an upturn in fortunes and... You know, a couple more, a couple more wins in the next um, next few game weeks, and you know we'll definitely firmly be be in there. And we're not, you know, maybe the automatics are a bit far off, but it's not beyond the realms of possibility by any stretch. No teams running away with it, are they? Apart no, from Wolves. Apart from Wolves, exactly. And last season, it was two or three teams were running away with it. Mm. Whereas this See, year, this season as well, I think there's still sorry to cut you off. Yeah, I, still, I still think there are some teams that are probably going to drop out of there slightly. I mean, we talk, we um, Bristol City, I think, probably may drop out because they're looking very tired. And they're in the same position that we were last year, just after Christmas, where their whole squad looks so stretched. And they have a, a, a very small but a very balanced squad. And once it gets to the point where they look tired, then they may drop out. And I also um, I'm quite... I think that Preston will do the same as what they did last year at the end and drop off slightly. But then again, I, I'm equally as worried about the likes of Derby County. I'm equally as worried about Aston Villa... For me, and Middlesbrough under Middlesbrough, Pulis. yeah. Yeah. Although they did lose this weekend, but you know, it, you know, you need some time to readjust to uh, not using your midfielders and just playing long ball football. But that comes with time. Yeah. The only the only one I'm really kind of think will definitely still be up there are Villa because they've got the the squad to. Oh, I think to... Derby will be up there as well. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I yeah. I mean, but you know, Villa is probably out of the the squads. They're Derby be the surprises strong... me because I just didn't think they were that impressive when they came to the cottage That's the at thing. All. They weren't that impressive and they still came away with a point. Yeah, I yeah. guess. They're um, really well drilled, really got a lot of strength in depth. Gary Rowett, yeah, great Gary Rowett's a good yeah, manager, yeah, yeah. so there you go. Uh, Jack, I just wanted to ask you about our home form. Now, mad to say, but the cottage is slowly becoming a little bit of a fortress. It's four wins in a row now at home. Okay, not all against the greatest opposition, but we've got two more very winnable games coming up at home, uh, Burton Albion and Nottingham Forest, which we should win both of those games by merit of the table. I know it's never that simple. Yeah. And then you've got a little bit of a home run going, and that could be vital for us. And the opposite to last season, where it was the away form that kept us going, if we can just keep winning the games at the cottage, that could be the key. Yeah, of course, and and there's there's plenty to be said about having a home a home ground that you're happy to come back to, and it makes it easier for all the players when they know that coming home is going to give them a massive boost, and also then it gives the crowd a boost because there's obviously more people there, and the more Fulham keep winning at home, the more people are going to turn up week on week to watch the Whites, and 
that's obviously a good thing because then we make more noise and and etc 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 and but it it you know it, it's going to it's going to take home and away this season and 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 it's funny to say the one thing i didn't think was going to be an issue was our away form because i thought taking teams apart on the counter was going to be you know the the way that that Fulham won things and it it does seem a little bit like we haven't got the swashbuggling swagger that we did away from the cottage last season so you know i suppose that swings and roundabouts we needed something to come up trumps for us if we were if we were to to, to um, and to get back into the playoff race which we have done and i think that that thing has, has been our home form which is i don't think anyone was expecting least of all us but yeah i mean it's we we'd like to see it continue i think that potentially we're you know not necessarily getting too excited as as they say but it's it's there's there's some perspective we had we had a brilliant away win at cardiff that's an unbelievable result um you know prior to that we we struggled um we 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 got a point against Hull somewhere where we I think we should have won and we beat we scored four goals against a ten man Ipswich. I mean I wouldn't I wouldn't put the like champagne on ice just yet. But it's an improvement and I think it's something that, you know, has to be given credit. I said that just after the Sunderland game when we had the big argument about Slavisa, that what I wanted more than anything was to see him improve and to see him, you know, take on board criticism and then be like, Okay, I'm gonna have to learn to deal with this in a different way and to and to sort of Make the movements that would would appease a fan base and that everyone was calling for, and he he has to a point done that, and he's he's taken on board. I think some of the criticism, you know, we haven't seen really Rui Font out wide, which is something that we we criticised heavily. Um, we've seen an introduction of Kamara through the middle, and you know, it wouldn't have been the number nine that I would have put through, but it's a number nine, and he he's gone through the middle and he scored four goals in two games. Yeah, they were scrappy. Yeah, some of them were deflections, but. He's got the ball into the back of the net where it needed to be. He, you know, forced changes have made that Cabano and Aite have rotated. Ojo had a, you know, most of a game off against Hull, and that those rotations have, you know, come up trumps in the way that when players needed that extra gear yesterday against Ipswich, they were able to find it because they haven't been overworked, and then the squad looks less stretched than it was last this time last year. And you know what? And I'll put my hands up and say, you know, I was calling for Slavisa to to make those changes, and I said that I thought he'd be too stubborn to make them, and that's why I was, you know, sitting on the fence of being like, maybe at the end of the season we need to change the manager. And he has taken on board, obviously not my criticisms. I don't think Slavisa is sitting here listening to what I've got to say and taking it on board, but he has taken on the board criticisms from somewhere and and gone, okay, these things needed, and and hands up and credit to him where it's due because he he's made those changes that needed changing, and Fulham look like they're better again. We're not perfect. And we need serious strength in January, but you know, fingers crossed, we can add to that and keep this run going, and then and then things will look rosier again. And I, you know what, if me eating my words is the result of is the result of Fulham doing well, then I'll eat my words all fucking season. Well, we're going to come on to some questions in just a second with uh, Secretary Jack. Just to say this, on this week's Fulhamish Extra, which if you haven't heard, is the second podcast that we're doing each week. Uh, We're going to be previewing the Southampton match, the FA Cup third round, uh, asking the importance of an FA Cup run for Fulham this season now that we have a sniff of the playoffs. Is it something that we should be prioritising? And we're going to have a little bit of a discussion as well about transfers. Already some rumours flying about for Fulham in the transfer window. Also going to be asking the boys where they think needs strengthening in this month. So uh, make sure you download that. That should be out on Friday morning. Right, Jack, got time for two or three questions. What's coming in? 
We've got a load of really good questions, actually. So thank you very much. I think we might have to we might move some of these to the extra podcast okay. because there's so many good questions. But um, I'll open with an email question we got from Ozzy, who said, <clears throat> "What do you think of Tom Kearney's performance last night? And also, how much do you think Sessignon is now worth in this market?" Um, well, Tom well, Tom Kearney played very well last night. He played especially well when Ipswich went down to ten. For me, he just suddenly had that extra yard or two of space and give someone like Kearney time and space and he will devastate you. And, and I think the third goal for me just proved how much quality he had. He danced through four players. He actually, for me, had a moment to shoot himself and I was nearly about to lambast him when he took that one extra touch. But then, you know, magic to play that ball through Bielikowski and find Sessignon at the far post. Sessignon's current value... I genuinely would be disappointed anything under 30. I would be gutted if it was anything under 30. In the I think current, that's reasonably conservative. Yeah, I know. Honest. In the current market where Virgil van Dijk's worth £75 million. Son Bamba's worth more. <laughs> also, Virgil van, look, can we just briefly on the Virgil van Dijk thing? Virgil van Dijk is worth £75 million pounds to Liverpool. Like, fact. Like, as in Virgil van Dijk is an excellent centre-back and Liverpool's problems are at centre-back. I think, I think in fact, they would have said Virgil van Dijk is worth more. If Liverpool had paid £100 million for van Dijk, I would have said probably worth it. I just think you can get better defenders than Virgil van Dijk. Raphael Varane. I don't think you would have got Raphael Varane for £75 million. Pounds. Better than van Dijk. But you wouldn't have got him for £75 million, pounds, so the points are relevant. No, but what I'm saying <laughs> is Sammy said there are better defenders than van Dijk. Yeah, Raphael Varane. Tim Ream. <laughs> Samuel and Titi. Um, what are other opinions? Rimaldo. What are other opinions on a Kenny's performance and and Sessignon's value as well? I think that Kenny over the past couple of weeks is now, like I said earlier, is coming back to full fitness. He looks like he's not having to play within himself and is sort of not worrying about this knee injury that he he had at the start of the season, where no one could really diagnose what it actually was. He now looks like that's at the back of his mind. And he's playing freely again. I think that he really took it upon himself last night to to create chances and to create space for the others. Um, and I thought his shot um, that really troubled Bielkowski um, towards the end of the game that he oh. had to palm around the post was a really stinging effort. Mm. And it's probably the first time we've actually seen TC release one of them for quite a while. I'd probably go back as far as last season now. Um, so I'm glad that he's really back to full fitness. And it was a joy to see him play yesterday, and especially when he's dancing through the defenders. Sessignon in today's market probably should, as Sammy said, be commanding a minimum of £30 million. However, one thing I'd like to... I probably will burst everyone's bubble with this point, but you have to be really aware that he is only on a two-and-a-half-year deal now, I think. And he is only 18, and it's going to be difficult now to get him on a bigger deal. And that when someone does come in for him, they will use those two things as a bartering tool. And we don't expect that the fee we get up front will be anywhere near what mm. we actually want it to have be. Have we got yeah. a year extension on that? There will be some we do sort have an option. There's probably an option. I think it's, I think it's a two and a half year play with an, with an option. In that, I, I feel, still feel like the point stands because they will come to the negotiation table and they will say he's not on the long contract in real terms. Yeah, yeah. And that he's still only very young and whilst you pay for potential, they don't know if they're necessarily going to get it. But you look at other transfers that have happened around the world for players of his age. You look at one in particular is Vinicius Junior, who yep. signed for Real Madrid yep. from Flamengo, yep. and I believe. Arthur, which you should and, see come through Arthur, this. And Arthur, yeah, yeah, from Gremio. Gremio. Yeah. 
Both of them are signed for Spanish clubs. Vinicius Junior cost 46 million euros. He has only played something like 120 senior minutes of football. The guy is, is 16 years old. He still wears braces and he's worth that. Sessegnon could be worth as much as that, if not more. But we have to get a negotiation right. It's as simple as that. Yeah. It, it, you got to draw. Com- you might have to draw comparisons in between. Well, you can't really draw comparisons in between similar situations. You know, we sold Patrick Roberts for what was estimated at fifteen million. We don't know about add-ons or anything like that. And that was a player that had hardly played for Fulham in the league. And we've got a player who's now played almost two full seasons. And you know, he's pretty much he started the most games for us this year, and he's not even eighteen yet. You know, then 15 million, do you, you go up to 30 million, do you go to 40 million? It depends who's the buying club as well. And quite rightly, Jack points out, you know, there's a difference in between value and worth. You know, he might be worth a lot to someone like Spurs or Liverpool. He might not be worth as much to a Man City or a, or a, to a Man- or Real Madrid or Man United. Uh, but his market value is basically what, everyone, what anyone's willing to pay for him. So you know, different clubs will come up with different measurements of what that might be. And they're all going to come in quite low because the bargaining chips are all held with those those people. But also the bargaining chips, you know, with Fulham still have a lot of those bargaining chips. I We still got him. We still got him. We still got the chance to go out to the Premier League where he's going to be worth a hell of a lot more. So following on from that and taking a direct point, this is from Luke Resch. He says, if the club were offered 30 million for Sess in January, would you accept it? So I'm going to just go one yes or no, Sam. Uh, no, absolutely no. Ben? No. Farrell? No. So what would the offer have to be for you to accept it for Sess in, in January? 31. For fuck's sake. 30 million and one pound. <laughs> 30 mil plus in that we'd get him loaned back for at least another 18 months. I, I was about to say something just arbitrary like 50 million, but actually I think Ben makes a far more sensible and realistic point there. I'd still want him to be a Fulham player and I'd want... But yeah, I just... I, I think it's the whole thing about it being January and halfway through our season and scuppering our playoff race. If this is the summer, totally different question. But I just... I don't like the January transfer window anyway. I don't think Fulham will... I mean, we don't yeah. really have a record of selling players no, in January. I'm not January. saying we're right. I'm just... As a pure asking yeah. that question. I genuinely think 50 million, a two-year loan back and a 15% sell-on, that's what I'd agree with you. Okay, if you're listening, Spurs, Man City... That's what I'd say. Yeah, we're sending Jack for the negotiations. Well, that's a big... That, as in, that's a lot of money. It's a lot of money, and no team's going to take that lightly. That's pretty much spending their entire transfer budget on one player who's not even 18 yet. Two years. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, 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 that's a good question, though. I thought... Yeah. We're gonna, I'm going to leave... Basically, there's loads of really good questions about transfer windows, but I'm going to leave them for the extra podcast because we're about to discuss... We'll discuss that on Thursday. So it makes more more sense to, to do those there. But there are some brilliant questions here. So I, I'm going to just take two more quickly, which are not about transfers. This is from Alex Bomer. He says, Should Cabano start against Middlesbrough? We thought he was superb out on the right against Hull and Ipswich. It's, it's a tough one because if Cabano plays on the right, then you've got to drop someone like Ojo, assuming Aite um, isn't going to play. Because, you know, you'd prefer to, and I'm sure that the rest of the panel agree that you'd prefer to play Sessegnon out on the left. And then it's basically a choice in between Ojo and, and Cabano. Um, personally, I would, I'd, I, it's, a, it's too tough to call. I think they're both as good as each other, really. I thought, I've got to say, Cabano. I thought he was good last night, though. Not, not for me. I still prefer Ojo on the right. Um, and if 
and I still prefer Sessegnon at left wing. I just think Ojo, especially in what is going to be a tough game up at Middlesbrough against the Tony Pulis side that have got a couple of wins under their belt again, I just think that Ojo is the much more... We, we seem to play well with Ojo. Yes, he's had a couple of bad, not bad games, but he's not had his couple of best games. I think, though, he is the man to lead us out of the Riverside. Yep, Ben? Um, I think I'll probably start Cabano, actually. Um, sorry, Sammy. I'm with you, Ben. Don't worry. Explain yourself. <laughs> um, mainly because I think that um, Ojo's impact on the last two games has dropped off just slightly. I think that whilst he, he was good against Ipswich, I feel like um, Cabano offered a little bit more, and I like the fact that Cabano can play in those tight spaces, and I feel like um, that Middlesbrough may fall in on themselves a little bit this weekend. They may, they may try to... Um, may try to like fall back and play a little bit deeper on the counter for uh, against us and I think that Cabano's good in those tight areas um, whereas Ojo is better when the game is stretched and you're looking for a powerful runner okay cool um, and the last one is from Lester White who says how good was Norwood in the K-Mac anchor role last night Seth and AK will get the headlines but he was mad of the match for me I thought he was superb I'm going to start with Farrell uh, last night yeah I think that he was excellent in parts, but the other parts, he was poor. I think apart from, I mean, you know, there was the opportunity as poor pass that almost led to a goal, which was their first shot off target, if you can call it that. But there were about three or four other occasions where he played incredibly poor, risky passes. And they're, they're going to be missed under the fact that Fulham won 4-1. So, he, but... To his credit, there were some other very good things that he did, but in equal and opposite measure, he did some poor things. Sam? Absolutely no way man of the match. I mean, I just think that's not even a feasible option, especially considering some of the other strong performances across the pitch. I think that Norwood was okay in the K-Mac role, but he is no K-Mac. And, and last night, that pass that he was trying to find a doy at the back and he so nearly played in Joe Garner, I think, for what would have been a calamitous own goal. I mean, was was craziness trying to play that pass across his, own, across his own penalty box. And for that alone, I think someone can't be mad of the match. But I agree with you, Farrell. There's too many misplaced passes for me with Norwood. And yes, he did some good stuff last night. And I don't think he was the worst player on the Fulham pitch last night. Not that there were really any bad players, apart from maybe Bettinelli, who didn't cover himself in glory. But man of the match, nah. Ben? Um... I don't think I'm going to be anywhere near as harsh as these two guys, right? But I think that I think when it got into the second half and you're looking for someone to quarterback the team, and you couldn't really have asked for a better person than, than Norwood in this case. I thought he was quite good from deep areas, actually, and I think that what he did was move the ball around and make it switch move around in turn. I think that when you've got 10 men, a player like Norwood is probably good for a team because he's quite clever and he understands the patterns of the way you need to make the team work and the shape that you need to move the ball in in order to make the other team move around and get them tied and work spaces. And I think he'd done that exceptionally well in the second half. I do agree that in the first half, when we were well on top in the opening 25 minutes, he looked imperious, actually. I think his passing was really good. Um, when Ipswich realised that the only way to get into Fulham was to really start to press them is when he started to panic and then it was that in that in that panicked period of time where he put Fulham in situations that they shouldn't have been in and he picked passes that shouldn't have been picked. Um, 
And I think that's what all you've got to say for Norwood's performance, really, is that when we needed him to be a quarterback, he'd done it very well. When we needed him to circulate um, possession and build up patterns of play, he'd done that very well. But when you put him under pressure, he quite often flounders. Um, as Sammy said, and I'll echo his words, he played the K-Mac role really well last night, but he's no K-Mac. I, um, I think that that last point is spot on. I, I thought in the second half, Norwood's kind of ability to drive from deep and not necessarily in that kind of like big K-Mac style, but actually release players and look for the pass over the top. And I've criticised him heavily for playing Hollywood balls that didn't, you know, didn't really do anything. He didn't do that so much last night. His play from deep was excellent, and I thought that it pushed in the second, in the first half. I felt like Steph was exposed heavily and and looked exposed and looked actually quite awful at points because Norwood's defensive capabilities aren't as strong as K-Max. But in the second half, the complete opposite. Johansson looked far more assured because he was playing far further up the pitch. And that was because Norwood had taken control of that middle area. And because it was so deep, it was easy for him. But Norwood took control and it drove Johansson higher. And Johansson in that higher role in the midfield, not in a nine in, in the midfield, <laughs> yep. um, is, is where he thrives because he allows him to break the lines. And when he does that, he's a much better player and mm. far more influential. And I think that it would take the hard, the most ardent Steph Joe, you know, critic to say that Steph wasn't better in the second half than we've seen him in, in, in many points like this season. So I think that that's, to Norwood's credit, I wouldn't start him ahead of K-Mac for, for pretty much all the reasons. But, you know, I think that you have to give credit where it's due. Okay, well, that is all we've got time for on tonight's Fulhamish podcast. A bit of a bumper episode as we try to dissect four matches pretty much uh, in the space of an hour. Hopefully we've done uh, enough of them justice. Just to say that Fulhamish Extra will be available on Friday. We'll be previewing the FA Cup third round match against Southampton at the Cottage and loads of transfer talk as well. Um, but Jack, we do need to name tonight's episode. Um, safety catch removed. Oh, very nice, very nice. Mm. Almost like a three-word review from you there, Jack. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, there is there are there are three-word reviews to this extent. But I think it's very uh, a very easy joke to make. I, I thought about just calling it "new bullets found," <laughs> but I thought that, that didn't quite express the. the you know, the capabilities so highly. So the amount of times that AK has made it into the uh, yeah, the amount of times that AK has made it into the uh, pod title this season, he's got to be a record. There was a brilliant three-word review that we missed out. There was an AK 47-minute blitz, um, which I thought was clever, but I, I think that might be a bit much for a podcast title. So considering we're using this to dissect both Hull and Ipswich, I think safety catch remove is the only thing that does the justice. Thank you very much. Well, we'll see you on the extra episode, and then after that we will be back uh, next Monday dissecting what is hopefully a successful FA Cup third round weekend. So thank you for listening. Thank you to Ben Jarman. Thank you, mate. Thank you, Jack Collins. Goodbye, listeners. And thank you very much. to our children. See you later. Bye-bye. Doodles. Bye. Acast powers some of the world's best podcasts. Here's a show we recommend. Hi, I'm Beth. And I'm Sarah. And we're the hosts of Pantsuit Politics, where we've built a community around grace-filled political conversations. And we wanted to share the words of our listeners because they understand best what we do. Susan told us... 
Many times I've used your words when my own have failed, opening doors that allow for discussion rather than debate. Amber says we encourage her to be more involved, to be a better citizen, and to be part of her community. Nicole said, Listening to you two process with one another is the only way for me to become unstuck. With the impending election on the horizon, join us and our amazing community of listeners at Pantsuit Politics as we prepare to vote, process the election, and prioritize our values and each other. Make sure you participate in our democracy by listening to Pantsuit Politics and, of course, exercising your right to vote. ACAST, 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 ACAST recommends. recommends.